if people die in war or they, you know, die in childbirth or from disease, we kind of accept that. But when manticores eat someone, we don't accept it. Welcome to the Skiffy Infanti Show. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, right? Are birds typically that big? I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And today we are joined by the illustrious Fonda Lee, author of many books, including Zero Boxer, The Green Bone Saga, The Exoduology, and today's book of interest, Untethered Sky, via Tor.com. Welcome to the show, Fonda. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be fun because uh, we get to interview you about this book involving giant birds, which yes. is really, really cool. <laughs> I want a giant bird friend. <laughs> yes, I've been calling this the murder bird book. Uh, oh, that, that, that seems to have caught on quite well. I, I now think of it as my murder bird book. Nice. If you write another one, are we going to have a, a string of book series from Tor that's just murder some other word? <laughs> so it's murder bot, murder bird. You know, murder hamster. Like, <laughs> I like this idea a lot. Please, let's make that happen. I, I think I'll piece out of murder hamster. I'll let I'll let someone else take that one on. Yeah, that Ooh. one. I think you need like a John Scalzi or like yeah, a Chuck yeah. Wendig. Yeah, you got to be a little, little weird. I think <laughs> <laughs> murder hamsters. Oh my god. Anyway, uh, so before we get into all of the wonderful questions that we have planned about this wonderful book, I remind it to everyone listening that we want to hear from you. So please share your comments with with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. Uh, we like putting together listener mailbag episodes. We did one very recently and it was really dope. So we'd like to do more of those. So please give us your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, books that you'd like us to read, and more. Uh, so please check us check that out at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We love to hear from you. Perfect. Okay, so Fonda, let's get this started. So Untethered Sky, it's a book that you wrote. Uh, would you would you tell us a little bit about this giant bird book that you wrote the mur- the the murder bird the murder book, bird book yeah. yeah so uh, so untethered sky is a novella it comes out on April 11th and it is uh, what I have been describing as wildlife memoir with monsters so I wrote this um, after finishing the Greenbone saga which is the epic fantasy trilogy that recently concluded um, and I was really in the mood to write something short. And I had actually started writing Untethered Sky years ago. I went back into my files and looked, and it was 2015 that I had begun drafting um, this story. And at the time, um, I got partway in and then set it aside because I had other books on contract. And I found when I went back and looked at it that I was still really fond of it. Um, So I picked it back up and it turned into Untethered Sky. Um, It is the story of a young woman who pursues the dangerous profession of training rocks, giant birds of prey, to hunt man-eating manticores. And and it's a story really of her relationship with Zara, who is the the rock that she is training, um, as well as her, her coming of age and experience um, going you know, on this, this journey of becoming a rooker. Mm-hmm. So first, I want to thank you for uh, confirming for me how rock is pronounced. I'm particularly grateful for that. One of the things that I thought was really dope about this book was because it's a story about uh, attempting to 
uh, tame uh, rocks in the pur- for the purpose of uh, hunting manticores. It is a version of a kind of relationship that we kind of know and understand in real life, the relationship that we have with our pets or like the relationship that a falconer would have with a trained bird, but is so much bigger in scope and uh, so much like more fantastical in that sense. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask, how did you see yourself exploring that human, that, na- that nature of a human animal relationship here? And how much, how much of that is inspired by like real life interactions with, uh, humans and uh, uh, other animals. Yeah, I I have always had a soft spot for stories about human animal companionship. So when I was a kid, I was really into stories like Where the Red Fern Grows and Julie of the Wolves and My Side of the Mountain. Um, and I, which is kind of ironic because I was not at all like an outdoorsy child. I was a bookish nerdy kid. And so I I, I think like, these stories of animal companionship and, you know, survival in the wilderness and bo- forming bonds with, with creatures were, it really was fantasy to me, right? Like this is, it was sort of to me in the same genre as like wizards and dragons, like they're just like surviving in the wilderness and, and create and becoming a member of a wolf pack. Like that just seemed um, very much something that was, that was fantastical. And I, um, kind of never really lost my love for that particular little uh, genre. Um, and the actual like inspiration for Untethered Sky came from a few different places. Um, it came from uh, partly my fascination from a distance with falconry and having um, gone on a couple of hawk walks. I went on one in Ireland um, when I was on vacation and I visited a raptor center um, and I've, I've just been sort of fascinated by birds of prey because they're really cool, but also terrifying. And, uh, I kind of, um, took that idea along with, you know, this, the, these animal companionship stories that I had enjoyed and my fantasy writer brain did the what if, but like these creatures that are kind of already terrifying on a small scale were like the size of an entire human being. Um, and, they actually, I mean, I'm, the, I'm not too far off from truth because there were actually ancient um, birds of prey. Uh, and I, I think they're called Hast's eagles, but they're huge birds of prey that at one point scientists believe might actually have preyed on humans. So there, there is some factual basis for, for rocks and for untethered sky. That is okay. That, that is interesting because I've never heard about this before. I know that rocks come out of mythology, uh, which also manticores as well. And so maybe we can try to bridge this a little bit. But you're now you're adding this other dynamic, which is like, well, maybe the rock myth is not <laughs> entirely myth. It might actually be that some early humans were like, yeah, these giant birds <laughs> keep swooping down and like stealing our friends. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm as I'm talking to you. I'm actually quickly looking up to make sure I got the name right, and I was correct. It's the Hass Eagle, um, and they were found uh, in New Zealand, um, and were the largest eagles known to have existed. Um, how, and how they large? preyed. So they had an estimated weight of thirty-three pounds, um, and big. they preyed on the moa. So the um, those big, flightless, uh, extinct birds. Yeah, they could they could potentially have take, taken a person. 
like animals are already can be kind of scary. Like I know in the book you kind of mention like lions and other like large animals of prey, but they kind of pale in comparison both to the manticore and to the rock. <laughs> like even you describe it one point that like Zara went and like caught a lion, but like it wasn't really that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a wild thing to think about, because in our life, like if you met a, like a full size lion, like you're in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I also have this fondness for like monster stories and like monster hunting stories, so that definitely played a part in the inspiration here too. I mean, most of my books, I think this is the case for a lot of writers, are like these different things that you think are cool and you smash them together. Well, this this is, brings me to the mythology question because the, then you know you have rock and manticore, which both come out, if I understand correctly, from originally from Persian mythology. Although both, I think, have appeared in multiple different mm -hmm. uh, cultures in different ways, and I I was curious about kind of uh, your interest in this particular grouping of of creatures of myth and kind of where where you kind of got the inspiration to in some ways like treat manticores like natural disasters kind of. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So I, uh, I, I started with the idea of the monster bird of prey and um, began researching rocks and found out that they originate from Persian mythology. And so that led me to um, think about, okay, well, if I'm imagining a secondary world that's, that's inspired by um, ancient Persia in which rocks are real, what would these giant birds be hunting? What would they eat? Um, and so then that led me to manticores and it, it like it just all made sense because manticores are also part of um, Persian mythology and are, you know, said to be these like really terrifying creatures that can eat people. So it was, it was sort of the perfect ecosystem to kind of create for me and in, in my world building. And, uh, and then I, and then all the sort of the other pieces fell into place around that. Um, and as to like why I decided to make manticores what they are in this story, you know, I tend to take things that are um, very fantastical and magical and make them grounded in my fiction. So um, in the Green Mode Saga, I did that with sort of the Wuxia martial arts powers, and I really tried to make them feel like an organic part of this world and. Uh, and, and very kind of almost non-magical, mundane, if you will. Um, and I did that in Untethered Sky as well, because rocks and manticores, they come from mythology. There is sort of this mystique to them, this magical sheen. And I wanted to tell a story that was very kind of tight and um, intimate and grounded. So um, the reality of what would these beasts actually be like was was fun for me to imagine because I had to think about like, okay, well, how, I mean, how much, you know, bird poop would you have to really <laughs> deal with if you had a bird of that size, right? Like that's the sort of stuff that, uh, that I, that I like to imagine. And the same with like manticores, right? Manticores aren't just, you know, monsters that appear out of nowhere. They are, you know, they're becoming a bigger nuisance because humans are expanding and are having bigger towns and that's bringing them into conflict with the natural world. And, manticores have a certain like predatory pattern because they eat people and when people scream that's kind of what attracts them right it's like blood in the water for sharks but what is it about humans that would make manticores uh you know attack uh, so those are the sort of little world building details that I, I i enjoyed playing with i especially love the bit about the screaming because that's 
that's one of those things I think about with snakes. So I'm a snake person. Uh, I like I like reptiles. But one of the things that sometimes happens, like when you get bit, is the natural reaction is to pull. But for very large snakes, that's actually bad because their their right. teeth are curved backwards, and so it actually just makes it worse. Uh, and so the the thing you're supposed to do is like try to pull push back and then right. lift up and get it out so that they, you get the teeth out of your your flesh. So it's the exact opposite of what the natural reaction is. And it's the same with screaming because the natural reaction is big monster coming to eat me, <laughs> a scream. But right. <laughs> you're, you're now being told, Shh, be quiet, don't make a noise. And that's completely counter to every natural reaction. And that's, that's, that, I don't like it. It's scary. <laughs> I'll open by saying I like Untethered Sky in part because it is the kind of book that I would typically not have read Mm -hmm. and then i picked it up and tremendously enjoyed it and one of the reasons why this is is as as we have both like uh geeked out about very heavily we love the animal human relationships in this book but that's typically not my jam i'm typically more into political intrigue in my sff of which there is a considerable amount in untethered sky but in a lot of ways, it is very diminished narratively. It's very, it's still very nuanced. It's, ve- it's still very complicated. But it's not the focus of the book in a lot of ways. And I really kind of wanted to uh, pick your brain about that and find out whether that was just like a natural consequence of telling the story that you already have confessed was your intention with the story, or whether you were trying to like actually be deliberate about how little political engagement appears in the work. Well, you pretty much uh, summed it up because um, you're right. There is uh, very much a focus in this novella on um, Esther and Zara and a lot of the, the stuff that's going on in the world around them is backgrounded. So the stuff, the things that are happening with the court and with the kingdom of Dartha, where they live, um, and this uh, the hunt for the manticores, and this great this great hunt that um, becomes a major plot point, that is all seen through the lens of you know how it affects Esther personally. But it, this is definitely not one of those fantasy novels that like dives deep into the kingdom and the politics and so on. And that was very deliberate. Um, and it was because I had just finished re- re- I'd finished writing the Greenbone Saga, which is three big books, sprawling canvas, dozens of characters, lots and lots of political intrigue, tons of, um, you know, geopolitics and economics and espionage and betrayals and like so much stuff, like so many moving pieces. And I really wanted to do something different with Untethered Sky and keep it extremely contained. So it was it was somewhat selfish on my part to write a story that was that uh, had a different feel um, and a different vibe from the Greenbone Saga and was much more um, personal and intimate in scale. But of course. I'm still a fantasy writer and I'm working in a secondary world. So I still have to do all that work. I still had to create the world of Dartha and know how it worked. And, and uh, you know, all those secondary characters had to still feel fleshed out, even if they show up on the page for a, a relatively limited amount of time. 
um, which is why writing a novella was harder than I initially anticipated. Because I initially thought, oh, it's going to be so short. This will be easy. But no, like you still have to do all the world building. You just don't have as much time to dwell on any of that in the actual text. Which is very hard, by the way. I think one of the reasons why I enjoy the way that it manifests itself in this book is, at least for me while reading it, the thing that I get from from Esther as a result is kind of like I know that all of this I know that all of this is supposed to matter but it doesn't matter to me if that makes sense like it gives the impression of telling the story from some from the perspective of someone who cares more about actually being a member of the world that she's in rather than thinking very deeply about like the the strings that are being pulled um, in the ways that a lot of other fiction wants us to care about. This political cause has a political effect. It's right, that right. It feels like we're just watching someone go, this sucks. I still have something to do, though. Yeah, I mean, it is very much about, you know, her, really kind of this period in her life, right? Which is what I was trying to um, do by making it memoir-esque in its vibe. So it is told first person, but um, there are sort of these these foreshadowing moments. And you can clearly tell as you read it that it's like an older, wiser Esther who's talking about how, um, you know, she got to become a rooker when she was, you know, young. And, um, and yeah, there, there, she's definitely not one of the people pulling the strings, right? So in a way, this is kind of like low stakes fantasy. I don't, I don't know if that's a term that gets used a lot these days, um, but I have heard it used occasionally, uh, low stakes fantasy, which is sort of strange because, you know, it's everything is high stakes to your character, right? It's, it's her life um, and everything, it's very high stakes for her. But this isn't like Dark Lord versus, you know, the army of light. Like it's, it's not world ending stakes, it is very much like let's tell a fantasy story about this one this one person who kind of has a job to do and is just trying to do their job as well as they can right and and i i think that is um you know that's satisfying in a different way um than you know your typical high fantasy or epic fantasy when you're making me think of in particular about the way that the book because you're right like we don't have world ending stakes, but the stakes, because the, as you were saying, the book is so personal because it has a memoir vibe. It, it, it is very much from Esther's personal point of view. The stakes are at least for the individual world changing mm-hmm. uh, because of the, I was thinking in particular, like we learn a little bit about some of the characters past and those pasts are fairly traumatic and they involve really horrible things happening sometimes related to the main the main issue of the book, but also other things that aren't um, that lead people down these paths. I was curious about that in particular, because it seemed to me that you were very much interested in sort of looking at this as like a meditation on the ways trauma can guide us, perhaps toward obsession or toward mm-hmm. singular, I think you said for Darius at one point that that she describes him as like single minded, or he does he describes himself as I believe. Yeah, I didn't set out exactly uh, to explore trauma, but what I did was try to, what I started with was, here's someone who is obsessed with training rocks. Why? Like what, what would have, what would lead someone um, to, to this? Um, And that's when I sort of started filling in the backstory with Esther and then, you know, some of her companions as well, like Darius. 
And I came to that place because I think this story is, even though it is very much about the relationship between Esther and Zara, that relationship is is one-sided. Like Zara does not have the same uh, doesn't have the same, you know, feelings and affection and uh, investment in this relationship as Esther does. And she comments on that multiple times throughout the book where she says she knows that she needs Zara more than Zara needs her because Zara at the end of the day is fundamentally a wild animal who could do perfectly fine on her own in the wild. And so the story is really about Esther trying to, to be, feel whole right? And to be, um, to kind of fill a void, you know, that she has as a result of the things that's happened in her life. And she fills that by really by fixating on Zara and on being a rooker and being like the best that she can be in this, um, in this chosen dangerous profession that she has. But, um, you know, I think the journey throughout the book, even though it's a relatively slim novella is about her trying to be okay you know, essentially being okay with herself, right? Being being okay on her own and finding like wholeness. And she's finding that wholeness by like, you know, by by pursuing something so obsessively. Um, but, you know, I didn't set out, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't set out to write a story about healing from trauma. And then suddenly because of the, like the events and the narrative and the way this character developed, it ended up being that. It, it, did you have one of those moments where like, the the characters just got like they they like took over the story. Is that kind of partly in a way? It does happen to some extent. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, right, to say that your yeah. characters took over. But in it is, I would say, a conversation between author and characters when you're writing a story, because oftentimes you have an idea of where the story is going, and it's not that the characters have a different idea, but the characters tell you things, or that you know, in the process of developing the story, you have to mine deeper under the characters in order to get at their motivations. And then that tells you things that might end up influencing the narrative. Were there any other moments during the writing process that something like that took place where a character or a part of the story like insisted upon a thing that you weren't thinking about beforehand and then you discovered that it was valuable to the story? Yeah, I mean, I would say... Honestly, the format is what surprised me. So I had initially thought that this would be a novel and um, I had started writing it as if it was a novel. And like I mentioned, it stalled out. Um, and then um, when Jonathan Strawn, my editor at Tor.com said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a novella? And I started giving it serious thought and I went back to the project and looked at it from the lens of a novella. Then it fell into place. Like then I, I knew that, um, you know, I could I could focus down on what the heart of the story was and and figure out what like didn't need to be there. Because I think trying to write it as a novel, I was trying to include too many things in order for it to be the length of a novel. Um, and looking at it really from the lens of a different format opened something up for me. I think that's really that's really interesting to me that it because oftentimes it's the other way around for writers like sometimes right. they write a short story and then all of a sudden it was a novel and you kind of went the opposite way yeah and i would say that's unusual for me most of the time my ideas are novels and i've you know i've i've now written uh two novellas and a bunch of short stories but that is uh, not the norm for me normally when i have an idea it's a full-blown novel idea 
And so I think just being able to recognize when it's more of a novella idea or more of a short story idea um, has been, you know, part of my development as a writer. When you kind of started writing, did you find that was where you felt comfortable when you were sort of opening up to the idea of professional writing? You started at the novel length and then it's been- I definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. Started as a, uh, as a novelist. And um, I remember when I actually tried to write short stories that it was quite- hard. I, and uh, other people, you know, are very much the opposite. They start with short stories and then they kind of build up to writing a novel. But now for me, it was novels from the get go. That's going to make me think about my own weird writing path now about like, what, where, where am I comfortable? And like, what should I be challenging on myself? <laughs> hmm. Are you more of a, of a short form person or more of a long form? Out of necessity, I've been short form. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I just don't, I just don't have currently a lot of time. So short form is something I could, but I I find that even with short form, really short, I struggle to stay at, like, I'm at like a a novelette length is about the shortest that I feel comfortable at. Right. And it's hard because not every place takes novelettes (laughs) and they're harder to sell. That is a tough length for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember writing, trying to write a short story at one point, um, that turned into a novelette and it eventually was published as a novelette. But, uh, but yeah, I, I hear you. That's a yeah, kind of a tough middle ground. It is. It's not as bad as novellas, but although it's gotten better for novellas, I found because now there's more publishers willing to do the novella length specifically, which has really been nice. And Tor.com mm-hmm. is, is one of those. I miss the novella because I like novels, but sometimes like I don't want to read a 500 page book. <laughs> I want like, under 200. Right, right. Yeah. It is satisfying to be able to pick a book up and then read it in an afternoon. Yeah, there is something really, I, I agree with you 100%. I'm like, I feel accomplished. Like, yeah, I did, did that. Mm-hmm. I got through that book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So let's, let's switch back um, to specifically Untethered Sky. So I just want to ask my silly question and then, and then Brandon will ask more serious questions later, but like uh, Darius, uh, He's adorable. <laughs> where, where did the idea for Darius kind of come from for you? Like when you were working with him, because I just find him like he just I, I want to protect him <laughs> from, the, from the bad things that have happened. I feel so sorry for Darius and I love him. So like, where was the idea for that? And why is he so cute? I don't even know how to answer that. That's a very that feels like a very leading question, Sean. Um, I, you know, so I. I um I like slow burn romance relationships and I also somewhat I okay don't tell him I ever said this. I don't know if he's ever going to listen to this, but I I partly based Darius on my husband. <laughs> so a lot of like his mannerisms and just like the way he does things are sort of the things that I find endearing about my husband. Aww. And so I think that's why he comes across that way in, in the story, but I'm very glad that you enjoy him as much as I do. I, he's the best. <laughs> I want, I want another story. That's just Darius. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to briefly like kind of get back to what I think is the, the, core te- the the core argument of the book which is um human's relationship to natia uh we were talking uh earlier about how uh mantico is essentially just kind of thrive on humans responding the worst possible way to being uh in danger 
um, in a way that uh, draws more attention to the problem and makes the problem worse, which is kind of hilariously and intriguingly contrary to another kind of argument in the book, uh, which is that humans gain more strength and gain more power in numbers, that uh, they can be safer in larger places, that when they band together, and when they, essentially, the Rookers, as a profession, also kind of prove that when they can manifest that kind of relationship with their own population and with Natia in concert, they can be safer and um, more in control of their surroundings. Which is a kind of powerfully naturalistic argument to make in our present day, given the kinds of relationships that we have with nature in the real world uh, right now. And I kind of wanted to ask, uh, would you say that this book is like somewhat exploring the importance of uh, human connection for survival, uh, human connection with nature in order to survive in natural space? Or whether those were other things that just kind of manifested in the way that they did in the work? Yeah, I think they definitely were uh, thing themes that sort of organically grew out of the story, um, and maybe it didn't really have. I didn't go in there with like a deliberate. And this happens most of the time. I don't usually go into writing a story with like a deliberate idea of like these are the themes I want to explore, but like things just sort of bubble up in the course of writing them. Um, and I think human relationship with nature and conflict with nature is definitely one of those themes that came up in the process. Um, and I, I don't, re- I don't know where this came from, but I remember being in a writing class once where, um, uh, the, the premise was put forward that there's only like a certain limited number of stories out there. And they basically boil down to, uh, like man versus man, man versus self and man versus nature. Right. And so like, it's something along those lines of like, you know, those there's, if conflict is the lifeblood of the story, you can be in conflict with someone else, with yourself, or like with the world, like the natural world as it is. And so this is this story is partly a story of like man versus self, if you will, because it's a it's you know Esther the protagonist. It's really about kind of her emotional journey, but it's wrapped around a story of man versus nature um, because there is a a fundamental or larger world conflict that Esther is a part of, which is to what extent can humankind exist or not coexist with manticores, which is with like a predatory species that eats us, right? And like, and, and, you know, do we, is our reaction, you know, to, to accept some amount of human loss to nature or is it to like fight against it and to try to essentially to eradicate manticores entirely and to, extinct them um and at time there is a time in the story where esther like mulls on this and she thinks like she doesn't personally believe that manticores can ever be eliminated right in the same way that i think a lot of people would be like you know can we can we ever you know be free from aging can we you know and science fiction deals with these things too right like can we be free from disease can we be free from kind of like the you know the the things that that uh you know nature afflicts us with um, and so manticores are kind of, um, they're symbolic. Like, even though I've talked about making them extremely real animals um, and part of the ecosystem, they are also symbolic um, because they, you know, they, they kind of, they stand for sort of like all the things that we can't control, right? And I think there's a part in the book where 
Esther talks about how if people die in war or they, you know, die in childbirth or from disease, we kind of accept that. But when manticores eat someone, we don't accept it. Um, and that that's sort of an observation that she has that I think is, you know, is sort of at the heart of the story um, of like, you know, to what extent do we try to control nature or to fight against it, you know, when it's a threat to us? Yeah, I think that's actually really rad. To go back to the analogy that you were making earlier about uh, Manticos as a natural disaster, I can't help but think about it in my own context as somebody presently living in the Caribbean, where <laughs> the Atlantic hurricane season is actually quite devastating for us on a yearly basis. And a lot of the conversation that we have on an ecological level as a result is a hurricane is bound to happen. This hurricane season exists because mm-hmm. hurricanes happen, but they've gotten worse and more frequent right. for reasons. And we are responsible for some of those reasons. Yeah. Is there a point at which you should be critical about, we'll never be able to prevent it, but what can we do to reduce its impact on our lives? Right, right. And I feel like a lot of the conversation about manticores in the book is similar. Um, yeah. Even though the book doesn't answer the question, it does ask the question, is there a continuum between just dealing with manticores as if it's a regular occurrence and just sacrificing your s- societies to them uh, or never having any manticores at all, where right. you acknowledge that in the middle it is just a manticore comes in your village every once in a while and eats two people, right. which still sucks. But is mm. better than some alternatives and is not unavoidable. No, yeah, you're uh, you really hit the nail on the head there because you're right. Like the reason why there are more manticore attacks in the world of Dartha is because the empire is expanding and we're building. You know, the the people are building villages and and towns um, in areas that they haven't before, and they're gathering in larger numbers. Um, and so, you know, you're uh, the analogy to hurricanes, right? Where it's like some of the reasons why this is happening is on us. And also, like, can it, how much are we willing to pay? Like, what's the cost that we're willing to bear in order to solve this problem, so to speak? Um, And, like, that that comes down to the, you know, this isn't a spoiler, I don't think, because it's probably somewhere in the flap copy. Um, In in the story of Untethered Sky, there is a huge hunt that gets announced, right? Because the government decides, okay, like, we have public relations problems here, uh, and we're going to solve this by um, by having this huge hunt, and we're going to say we're going to wipe out manticores in this this part of the country. Um, and you know how how that goes. I mean, I I think you're exactly right. Right? It doesn't answer the question of like, is this the right thing to do? But it definitely does bring up the bring up the question. It it also gives us. I was thinking about that as as you were both talking that there's like this moment in the book where. It sort of happens off screen, but Esther comments on it that when people feel perhaps unjustly safe, they stop taking seriously the threat, which is the moment at which the threat comes for you. And while I know that the book is not talking about this specifically, it made me immediately think of like how comfortable people get when they go to like national parks and they see bison and they're like, oh, so cute. Let me go right up to it, not realizing it's a very large wild animal that will in fact launch you into the sky. Right. <laughs> Maybe won't eat your face off, but <laughs> still not fun. So I, I wondered if, um, 
I, I don't know if you, if you had any thoughts on that, that particular element of like the way that we're trying to make people feel safe, but that may give people the like a false sense of security that makes it even more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, Esther certainly hints at having kind of a, 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 a somewhat tense relationship or not entirely like comfortable relationship with the people that she's protecting, right? Like yeah. her, her job is to have, is to train this huge bird of prey to keep the countryside safe. Um, but that is not always appreciated. It, like people don't always like gigantic birds of prey flying overhead. Um, they might also feel very entitled to have protection show up when they want it to show up. Um, so like there, I think those are some of the things that like I couldn't delve into deeply in a novella length story, but I wanted to have there, like I wanted to have it clear that like, this isn't, this is still a messy, you know, relationship. It's, it's you know, there's, this doesn't, the whole training gigantic birds of prey and dealing with giant man-eating monsters is like a pre- pretty big burden on the society and as a source of conflict on its own. Yeah, I love I love that that something that seems so simple can actually have so much complexity packed into it just based on how we look at the way people react and think about it, including everything from Esther to townspeople to other rookers as well. Yeah, I mean that's one of the, you know, joys of writing speculative fiction for me is the like what if and then all the cascading effects even if you don't get to you know explore all of those cascading effects in in detail they're always there and yeah. they come and play into your narrative in in fun and sometimes you know exciting unexpected ways sometimes terrifying and sometimes very fun like when the when the giant bird flies down and scares people's livestock almost as if it's just having a bit of fun <laughs> To be honest, that's exactly what birds would do. I feel like some birds are better than other birds. Like at some point, you need to ask what are what kind of bird a rock is. Because if a if if a rock were like a crow or a blackbird, it would absolutely be an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So this is something that I learned in the pro- so I talked to a few falconers while I was writing this novella, and one thing that I learned is like they absolutely talk about how their birds have different personalities. Especially like the falconers who have you know trained multiple birds, they they are, like the birds like people are are their own individuals, and some of them are cooperative and some of them are assholes. And like I and so I tried to I think convey that a little bit as well in the novella is like the different rocks have different personalities as well. Like there's another rock who is in the story who is you know very bad tempered and is much more of an asshole. Uh, and, um, but that, that is apparently that's true to life is that, you know, the, the birds individually can, can be very different and some of them will like fly away and just abandon you. I, I was thinking about that too, but, uh, yeah, cause they can have all these individualized personalities, but because of the ways that, as you were saying very early on in our interview, you're talking about the way that it's almost very one-sided that the mm-hmm. connections, because we're seeing this from humans in particular, we don't, we're not in Zara's head, for example, if the bond that they develop feels very one-sided in it, in some cases, like it's actually quite devastating for the Rooker. If for some reason their rock is gone, whether it's died or it's, it's left or whatever, uh, because it's like, they lose something of, of themselves. They lose purpose or whatever. And that's, like devastating in a in a way, but also something that I think your book suggests. Like you 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 can survive this. That that it's it's it is a thing that will happen, and it's depressing and sad. But 
there are other forms of companionship that matter, maybe. I, I don't know if that's something you were thinking of when you were putting together the book, but I got that impression from a lot of the book. Mm-hmm. I think I did go there largely because, um, you know, if you think about fantasy animal companions in uh, other books and movies, it's often very idyllic, right? Like there's yeah. often like this dragon imprinted on you when it came out of the egg and now you are like bonded telepathically for life, you know, or yeah. something like that. Or, you know, you have this daemon and it, it shifts and like it, it is, you know, com- it is like your constant companion um, or, you know, the, you are befriended by like a, like really cool wolves or, you know, there's, there's, I, I remember this cartoon, maybe I'm super dating myself, but I remember this cartoon that I enjoyed when I was a child, Dino Riders. Oh my god! Where like these, <laughs> You're laughing. Yes, you have watched Dino Riders. I can tell. Yes, excellent. I'm glad to have found another an, a, another aficionado of the show. So I remember this show because you know the the characters in it. They land on like prehistoric Earth and they tame the dinosaurs by basically like using this telepathic crystal. And like when they communicate telepathically with the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs are like, we are now your friends. And like, yes, you can ride us and like put harnesses on us and like be we will be your beasts of burden. And meanwhile, the evil people are like taming the dinosaurs by using like mind control caps on them. And uh, there's so there's so many examples. So the reason I was going somewhere with this Dino Riders example, which is like there's so many uh, fantasy human animal companions that are very like we have this we have like this perfect telepathic bond and nothing shall sunder it. Um, And in real life, that's like not really the case. You know, like if you are a horse trainer, if you're a lion tamer, if you are, you know, Siegfried and Roy, you know, if you are the 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 sort of person who wants to go and try and have a relationship with really dangerous wild animals, um, you know, it doesn't always go that well for you. Um, and even the domestic animals, like horses and dogs, I mean, they're they have their they those relationships are kind of more complicated, you know, than like maybe we would depict them. Um, you know, in, in, in fantasy. Uh, so this kind of goes back, I think, to just my desire to create nuance um, in this relationship. And, uh, and also because I came off of writing this trilogy that had a ton of familial relationships and wanted to explore something different. That's really interesting, too. I'm glad you brought up dogs, because I was thinking that exactly as you were talking. Dogs, like, they're probably the most safe companion animal that we have. But yet dogs, like, I was immediately was thinking of, like, chihuahuas and, like, very small dogs that are, like, really aggressive. But because they're so small, we just kind of ignore it. (laughs) Versus, like, I've seen people with... I don't know, like really large, like um, like huskies that are just like the most dramatic dogs in the world, but are otherwise fairly harmless. And there, that contrast in just the domestic dog, like immediately speaks to a lot of what you're talking about about how how much like we fantasize the dog is like it's man's best friend, but yet right that those relationships are actually dependent on what kind of dog you even have, right? Because it affects what you would do. Like you don't treat a German Shepherd the way you would treat a Beagle. Right. And I mean, we are also, um, you know, the way the relationship that we have with animals is very dependent on like how useful they are to us, right? Like horses get us places, you know, dogs have done all sorts of things for us. Um, And so that was very much a factor in the telling of the story was like, why would, why would we have, why would we want to keep these huge birds of prey that could eat our faces off? Um, And it's because, you know, they serve a purpose. 
And, uh, and so I, I wanted to kind of capture that as well. Like for example, in Untethered Sky, only the female rocks are ever trained because they're the only ones that are big enough to actually kill the manticores. Um, and, you know, things like that. You have sexual dimorphism in your story, which is also very fun. Some biologist somewhere is going to have a heyday. Because <laughs> there's, I, I don't know if you were thinking about that. Like if you did a lot of, uh, I don't know enough about birds to know if that's actually common in the bird world. But was that something mm-hmm. you were doing too? Is you kind of digging into like the real biology of birds? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that was something that I, you know, that this is from real life. Um, as are like a lot of the little details of falconry. One of the fun parts of writing this novella was actually getting to dive into falconry and like learn a lot about the practices and the techniques and so on. Um, and I had a couple of master falconers beta read the manuscript, um, which was great because they would pick out like, uh, well, they, they, first of all, it was really gratifying to hear that I'd gotten things right. Like not just technically, but just emotionally, like authentically the lifestyle I guess the practice of falconry. Um, but I remember one of my beta readers mentioning um, the jesses, so the leather straps that are used uh, that are around the uh, the bird's feet. My beta reader said, "You know, what kind of material would be strong and supple enough, you know, to to be used as a rock jess?" Which is why I think in the in the books I make mention of them using elephant hide. So like they would like pick up little things that a falconer would think about. And then I could weave those into the world building details. Okay. So now you're going to get like a review from a falconer at some point. Oh, for sure. I'm sure someone will be like, you got the, you know, this is like not how you would actually do it, but you know, (laughs) I mean, to be fair, like, (laughs) does anyone actually know what you would do with a bird of that size? Like, no, you 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 may think, you know, (laughs) I suspect that there are a few falconers who have thought about this precisely. I, I, I would, I would imagine that there is someone who who's gotten into the falconry business pre- precisely because they want to get the huge bird. True, but the huge bird it still can't come and like s- steal steal you in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's not <laughs> actually like the size. You know, <laughs> it doesn't tower a foot above you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've hoped that one might that one might be able to. True. Although I, I I guess the question becomes is like we're we're trying to imagine and speculate about the possibilities, but then nature is weird. So if a giant bird showed up, would it operate the way other birds of prey would operate? Or I don't know. I don't know. That's Nature's why I write fantasy. Place. When in yeah. doubt, just make it up. And in the interest then of uh, making it up, uh, we should obviously ask you then: What are you working on next? Oh gosh. So yes. Uh, so Untethered Sky comes out in April. I have a short story collection that is set in the Greenbone Saga world um, that comes out in July called Jade Shards. And then I am working on two projects simultaneously right now. Um, I have a, a science fiction duology uh, that was recently announced um, with Orbit. And the first book is called The Last Contract of Isako. Um, it is a, a novel that I am describing as my... Uh, uh, cyberpunk samurai space opera. Uh, and I uh, have also described it as um, what you would get if Akira Kurosawa wrote Dune, but also had like blended it with vibes of Blade Runner and John Wick. So that is what I'm working on. Uh, and that is um, my next project, which will be a while. So don't hold your breath. It will be out in 2025. Uh, and then I'm also working on a YA fantasy duology um, in collaboration with uh, the Bruce Lee estate. Ooh. Wait, what? <laughs> Whoa, that's cool. 
uh, Shannon Lee approached me um, wanting to to write to partner up and write a fantasy story that is um, it's a it's a martial arts tournament story arc uh, and um, inspired by her father's life and philosophy and some of the script treatments that he wrote. So I'm working on that too. So a lot, I just have a lot of books to write, but it's all, all good, exciting stuff. This is Mm -hmm. all very exciting. I want everything. (laughs) All this sounds fantastic. Indeed. So if folks would like to find you and your work, where are the best place places for folks to go? Uh, They can find me on my website. That's fondalee.com. I am on Instagram at fonda.lee. I am still on that cursed bird app at Fonda J. Lee. Uh, and I also have a Patreon. So you can find me um, at Patreon as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Fonda, for, for coming on and talking to us. Uh, this, this was really exciting and I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Brandon. So that's it for us, folks. Um, if you'd like to let us know again what you thought, please go to skiffingfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We're on all the social media sites at skiffingfanty. Just go to our link tree slash skiffingfanty for that. You can get our newsletter at skiffingfanty.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do, there's patreon.com slash skiffingfanty and give us reviews on the I- iTunes and like wherever you go to give reviews uh, because that would be nice. Uh, me, I'm at johnduke.net, alphabet streams on Twitch. I'm also at patreon.com slash the joy factory. And I'm also on all the socials and my link tree is slash Sean Duke. And I do the histories at seanduke.net slash the histories. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the rising tides, my newsletter at brandonobrien.xyz and on speculatorsf.com where I am currently GMing a thing, which may or may not be out by the time that you've heard it, but uh, I'm presently uh, orchestrating uh, a game of, uh, the wonderful Forge in the Dark uh, game Slug Blaster, which is quite a lot of fun if you want to uh, kickflip into uh, quantum portals and get in fights with demons. It's lots of fun. Awesome. All right. Uh, as is required by the Skiffing Fanti bylaws, I have to make everything awkward at the end. So uh, I've been inspired by this book to now train my cat to hunt my friends. So uh, Brandon, watch out. Winston's coming for you. Noted. Um, I mean, can Winston swim? I'm in the Caribbean, you know. Um, I, I, I've heard that cats don't really adore water, but I, I, I relish the opportunity. Please, let Winston okay. know I'll be waiting. Excellent. And on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>